Misties to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown to tell stories and analyze the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries for our, and hopefully your amusement. I am your very chilly host, Gary, with my wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Hi, Gary. Finally, we can agree on something. It's cold. And we live in Florida. But I'm always cold. And now you're chilly, too. Um, and I think I'm more cold because of the story. Oh, okay. Never mind. Goldie Ann, I have a problem I, I think I need your help with. Okay. I have a friend who will not stop telling me jokes about the abominable snowman. Are you this friend? No, this is a different friend. Okay. He will not stop telling me jokes about the abominable snowman, though. Okay. Yet, he still does. Oh, my God. And that's our joke of the episode. Yeti still does. Yeah, he still does. Now, with the joke out of the way, let's go ahead and talk about some of the news. Um, I want to let everyone know that we just received our 3,000th download, and it's really picking up speed. So thanks to all the new listeners and our loyal friends. Yay! Yeah, we look forward to thousands more, so we're going to keep growing and keep getting better, thanks to you. Also... Speaking of your support of the podcast, we had spoken previously about Paranormality Magazine. They were giving the opportunity for people to vote for their favorite top 25 paranormal podcasts. I was pleasantly shocked that, thanks to you, the Within the Mist podcast was ranked 8th amongst all paranormal podcasts during the month of November. And then, I've just been notified that we are still ranked 8th of all paranormal podcasts for the month of December. So two Amazing. months in a row. Awesome. Yeah, so to think, the show is so young, but has such a fantastic fan base. That is a perfect Christmas gift, so thanks to all of you. We've also received some reviews from you, our listeners, and wanted to read one of them out loud. Arkansas Big Feet on Apple Podcasts wrote, The pair sound very sincere in their discussion about the subject matter. They don't make fun of it, but actually research the topic and provide all evidence on both sides for the audience to make up their own mind. Can't wait to see how the show grows. You know, when you first read that one to me, I, all I could keep thinking about is, wait a minute, but it is real, right? <laughs> I, it's like I get so wrapped up in fact, fiction, hoaxes, and it's just, it's just, I mean, it's real, isn't it? It is to us. You know, I'm just... This is just my norm. I don't question things. I just look for them. There you go. <laughs> and if you look for them, you'll find them. Now, for the rest of you, if you'd like us to read your reviews, please rate us and give us a review on the podcast player you utilize. Now, as a disclaimer, today's episode contains a possible creature that has been known to attack people and their livestock. So some members of the audience might find that a bit unsettling, so please be forewarned. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe a little bit. Listener discretion is always advised. So what are we talking about? Well, let's take a walk within the mist. Higher in the Himalayan mountains than only the most daring of climbers can attain is a monstrous creature that walks on two legs. It is the most famous due to its mysterious tracks that it leaves in the snow. Despite dozens of sightings and expeditions into the remote mountain regions of Tibet and Nepal, 
its existence still remains unproven. Today, we discuss the abominable snowman, also known as the Yeti. Bumble from Rudolph. Bumble from Rudolph will play a role in this as well. <laughs> I love Bumble. In fact, I think Bumble, or the abominable snowman from Rudolph, is probably the most well-known example of a Yeti. And kids, you know, they know all about it. All about so it. cool. Well, I'm going to teach them a few more tricks about him. Awesome. Some things that I didn't know about until I researched this. Very cool. Teach me too. Well, I'm hoping to. The Yeti's existence has been explained by Buddhists as being a creature not belonging in the spirit world, but also not quite belonging to the world of man. The Yeti's existence is pretty much in an in-between space between the spirit and the material world. Yeah, that's awesome. And this has caused trouble. So chapter one, the Sherpa legend. The Yeti is a well-known figure in the myths and folk tales within multiple cultures living in the Himalayas. The Sherpa people, known because of their mountaineering skills and their assistance in guiding tourists to climb Mount Everest, have many legends about the Yeti. For the Sherpa people, the Yeti is always a figure of danger. During time before written language, the Yeti had wanted to become more like man and less like some spiritual beast. Unfortunately, this is like inviting a bear into your home and expecting it to be civilized enough to sit at the dinner table and use a fork and a knife. <laughs> the creatures would cause all kinds of damage to the Sherpa's farms, homes, and even the people. They used to torment the villagers every day, and as the violence became intolerable, the elders of the village gathered and worked out a plan to get rid of this yeti menace. Now their first idea was to take their knives and clubs and hunt down the creatures in the woods. However, the yeti were far too strong and far too fierce. The villagers just wouldn't stand any chance against them physically. Therefore, they had to outsmart the beasts. They devised a plan to trick the yetis into drinking Chiang, which is a local rice beer, Ew. something that the creatures had not experienced. The villagers knew that when the time was perfect, these creatures would become completely eradicated. All of the people agreed and nodded ardently, for all were eager to get rid of these beasts once and for all. The entire village gathered at a high alpine pasture on the next day between their homes and the woodland. Everyone brought a large kettle of the Cheyenne. They had also carried with them sticks and weapons like swords and knives and clubs to carry out the plan. Poor Yeti. Well, from noon and throughout the day, they stayed there and they enjoyed themselves the whole day drinking and laughing, singing and dancing. Once the Chiang began to influence their minds, the humans began to beat and fight each other with the sticks and weapons they had brought with them. They would howl and scream and others would cheer each other on. It became a wild and frenzied party of people attacking each other. Okay, wait. So they started drinking it? Exactly what they wanted you to think. I must have missed something. Well, let me enlighten you. Nobody died in this fight. Because to tell the truth, the humans weren't fighting. They were drinking only spring water. They were only pretending to dance, sing, and battle each other to deceive the Yetis. And as a result, not one villager was hurt during these mock battles. What? 
Towards the evening, the villagers left the pasture, but were sure to leave behind the large quality of the rice beer and all the weapons on the ground in plain sight. Soon, the entire party had returned to their homes. The villagers knew that whatever they did throughout the day, the yetis, hidden in the mountainous terrain all around them, had watched them attentively. Now remember I said the yetis wanted to be men. Right, okay. So, the yetis immensely enjoyed watching the villagers singing and dancing, drinking and fighting. They too had a mind to copy the people. So, the yetis left their hiding place in large groups and moved down to the pasture where they began drinking the interestingly smelling contents of the kettles right away. After a short while, most of them were tipsy enough to start mocking the singing and dancing they had watched earlier in the day. It didn't take long before the alcohol had an even stronger effect, and one of the yetis picked up a stick and hit another one over the head, just as he had seen earlier that day. His victim grabbed his own weapon, and soon the entire group of yetis became violent. They were fighting, just as the villagers had pretended to do so some time ago. In due course, they picked up the sticks and weapons lying nearby and attacked each other in a bloodlust. It took no time before there were dead bodies lying everywhere in that hushed pasture. It was a complete war, where the drunken beasts attacked each other with complete vigor. It took some time, but the less inebriated yetis eventually realized the danger they were in. Therefore, they escaped from the chaos, barely saving their own species from extinction. The very few that escaped became extremely furious with the humans for tricking them into such a death trap. At this point, these yetis swore to take revenge. However, they weren't able to retaliate, as most of the population was devastated during the incident. There just was too few against the entire village. Hence, the remaining yetis could only roar and shout in frenzy. With their numbers devastated, they began to live in caves higher up in the mountains, higher than where even humans could reach. They never desired to be part of man's world ever again and returned to being a spirit creature. From that day, they started considering human beings their adversaries. That's why the Yetis appear repeatedly to torture human beings even today. Wow. That's quite interesting. And this is a folklore? This is a Sherpa folklore that they would pass down from generation to generation. Wow. And this was their way of explaining why it's hard to find a Yeti and why it's dangerous to find one. Okay. The Yeti existed more spiritually with nature, and they became a protector of the mountains. They did not want to interact with man any longer. Any interactions would be rare and mostly with the Yetis escaping the higher up mountains. This would continue on for centuries, until there was an encounter with a holy monk. Chapter 2, The Monks and the Yeti In this legend, a Tibetan Buddhist yogi was making a pilgrimage and had wandered through the Himalayan mountains. Then, one day, he was crippled by an attack of gout and was, un- and was unable to walk. At this point, he decided to establish himself a makeshift home in a pleasant pasture at the edge of the forest. There, he found some goats who eventually followed him everywhere, much like pets. Oh, I want a goat. Well, he had a whole herd of goats. I want a baby goat. 
There, on that pasture, he remained and contemplated life and nature. On the other side of the hill, he could look out and he saw a huge, dark man coming and going between the abandoned shacks in the river. Apart from this, there was no other sign of people. This continued for quite some time, until one week, he no longer noticed his strange neighbor on his daily walk. He would keep a watch for the dark figure day after day, but there was just no sign. Having become intrigued by the mysterious man and feeling a little bit better, the yogi decided to investigate the man's dilapidated dwelling. Inside, the yogi was startled to come face to face with Amigo, or wild man. This is what the Tibetans called the Yeti. The hirsute behemoth was lying outstretched on the dirt floor. Its eyes were closed and its fangs apart. It was completely unaware of the intrusion. He was feverish and obviously very ill. One of the Yeti's feet was grossly swollen and full of pus. The yogi immediately noticed a sharp splinter of wood that could easily have been removed protruding from the infected area of the vast foot. The holy man felt sympathy for the poor creature's plight. He thought to himself, I know he could jump up and devour me at any moment, but now that I've come this far, I might as well try to help the poor creature. While he gently extracted the long wooden splinter, the Yeti, aware that a human was helping him, laid as still as a patient anesthetized upon the operating table. The kindly yogi was able to remove every piece of the splinter and then cautiously cleaned away the pus. He washed the wound using his own saliva as a salve, and then he bandaged the bizarre foot with a rag torn from his own clothing. On tiptoe, he left the Yeti, who remained motionless, pretending to sleep. He returned to his goats, which were tied to a tree in the forest, and then made his journey back to his own dwelling. Days afterward, the yogi saw the Yeti limping down to the river presumably for water, and then slowly returning to his home. Eventually, the giant creature's gait improved to the point where he could walk without difficulty. Miraculously enough, the yogi's own crippling gout also began to subside, so much that his painful stride began to return to normal. It was not long until he too was completely cured. After that, he no longer saw the yeti across the hill. One day, the ferocious yeti suddenly leaped down like a giant gorilla from the trees. The yogi was not sure if the creature meant him harm, but the beast only grimaced at the yogi, then sprang back up into the trees and was gone. A few days later, the same thing happened, but this time, the yeti was carrying a dead tiger on his shoulder. It placed the enormous carcass in front of the yogi as if a token of gratitude before it again bounded off into the dense jungle. So yogis eat tigers? No. In fact, the yogi did not wish to eat the meat, but he did skin the gift with meticulous care. And with his returned health, he returned to the Szechuan Monastery, where he offered the splendid tiger skin to the monastery for use during holy rites. This started a spiritual bond between the yetis and the monks. But it did not end there. In fact, historically, Sangwa Dorje left Sherpa country to study Buddhism in southern Tibet. There, he became very skilled in the practice. 
and he returned to the Sherpa Kambu region with a plan to found monasteries. He traveled to seek guidance under meditation in a retreat cave near Bangposh. In Tibetan Buddhist areas, people typically revere meditating hermits like Sangwa Dorje, and as a sign of religious devotion, people would freely offer them food and water in support of their religious studies. In this situation, it was a Yeti who cared for Sangwa Dorje. This Yeti would regularly visit him bringing food and water and fuel, and even became his own Buddhist disciple. It is not known whether this was the same Yeti that was from the previous story or another of his kind. But when this Yeti died, Sangwa Dorje retained the scalp of the Yeti and the Yeti's hand which provided him direction and guidance on how to construct the monastery in Pangbash Gumba. And he founded it, founded it around the year 1667. For centuries afterwards, the Drogon Lamas, who are successors to Sangwa Dorje's leadership, would periodically parade the Yeti scalp around the village in a fertility ritual to bless the people, the animals, houses, and the fields. Both holy relics remain there under the protection of the monks and are actual relics that people have seen and photographed. So now at this point, the Yeti have become more spiritual and are guiding the monks on their spiritual journeys. Oh, no, it reminded me a lot of um, what Aesop's fables Okay. Uh, like the, the the thorn and the tiger's paw. The mouse and the lion? Yeah. Yeah, I think something like that. Their version of their fables to our versions of our fables. And they just use the Yeti because that's their creature. It's quite possible. As with most great legends and stories, they attract the attention of people seeking adventure. Mount Everest, the tallest mountain, attracted Westerners who would learn that the area provided even more greater adventure with the Yeti. <laughs> and death. Chapter 3, The Creation of the Abominable Snowman. Uh-oh. In September of 1921, while Colonel Howard Berry was leading an expedition making a first attempt on the north face of Mount Everest, during his climb, the party saw several large dark creatures at 17,000 feet moving along the snow of the Lap de la Pass. The Tibetan porters identified the creatures as wild men, the Yeti, and after a long climb to the location where the figures were sighted, many man-like footprints were discovered in the snow. During this expedition, Howard Berry sent notes on his progress back to his contacts in India. This would allow newspapers to have an ongoing report of his progress to climb Mount Everest. His notes for the date of September 22nd essentially mentioned the details about the tracks amongst other details of his climbs for the day. Journalist Henry Newman found no excitement in the more mundane details about his climb for the day. Instead, he was interested in the unusual footprints. The colonel had written that they had a distinguished hare and fox tracks, but one mark, like that of a human foot, was the most puzzling. The porters, he quoted, assured him that it was the track of a wild hairy man and that these men were occasionally to be found in the wildest and most inaccessible mountains. To the journalist, this paragraph was accompanied by the speculation that there was a possible human-like race living in the mountains. This just proved too much to him and became a bombshell of a story for him to publish. 
Now, after the initial newspaper report of Howard Berry's party seeing the footprints, another newspaper article started to circulate, which claimed that the Everest expedition had actually discovered a race of wild men living amongst the perpetual snow. Wow, so even back then, newspeople were jerks. Well, they believed in sensationalism, and this definitely was sensational. Yeah, they stole it. The article also fabricated an imaginary explorer who supposedly had personally seen one of the wild men, but he had not come forth until Colonel Howard Berry's discovery. With this new statement by the fictional explorer, the article also presented one new detail of the party's experience. It claimed that the native porters reported not only seeing the footprints, but also saw creatures lurking nearby in the twilight, waiting for a chance to attack the explorers. Basically, the article became more and more exciting. Yeah, of course. It gets even worse, because this journalist even mistranslated the term the Sherpas used to describe the wild man. Uh-oh. Metak Agmi, which roughly translates by Sherpa meaning man-bear, snowman. <laughs> member pig, member pig. Here we are again, full circle. Here we are again. <laughs> the journalist translated to mean filthy snowman, which he decided sounded better as abominable snowman. Huh. So this is how we got the term today. Interesting. Yes. So a journalist created not only a race of people, but the exaggerated the footprints, and then mistranslated the name of the creatures and renamed it the abominable snowman that we have today. The readers loved everything about the story. Interest in the creature resulted in more expeditions making their way to the Himalayas to find the abominable snowman. So <clears throat> he started off with his real news story no, and no, then no. started fabricating Howard Berry, it. Howard Berry started it off sending real news reports. Right. They weren't being published. He was just sending them to the reporters. He was sending daily reports to the right. reporters. The reporter read the information mm -hmm. that the guy was sending it. Boring, 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 boring. Footprints in the snow. Yeah. Oh! That's took I mean. that out and then exaggerated that That's paragraph. I mean. In every article, he exaggerated more, more and more. More and more. And then he even, so. then he even mistranslated the name and created the Abominable yeah. Snowman. Now the Abominable Snowman guy's name is you know, pretty cool. It's like playing telephone with a bunch of first graders. When you say one thing and... You know, by the time it gets to the end of the class, totally something else. I guess you gotta sell papers somehow. And selling papers is how we got the term abominable snowman yeah. today. Continuing on, there was even more explorers traveling the Himalayas. Chapter 4, Shipton's Print. Many people tried to climb Mount Everest, and all had failed at this point. All the existing routes at this time were on the northern side of the mountain. So a British expedition set out to explore the southwestern side of the mountain to see if there might be a better climbing path to reach the summit later. This resulted in the 1951 Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition led by Eric Shipton. On November 8th of 1951, Shipton and one of the Sherpa guides had just crossed the pass and were descending a glacier in the Menglung Basin when they came across a line of strange footprints. The Sherpa immediately identified the tracks as belonging to a Yeti. Say he knew. Mm -hmm. Well, he's a Sherpa. Mm -hmm. Shipton, 
who had seen prints like this in the Himalayans before, realized that this set was relatively fresh, uh -oh. likely having been made in the past 24 hours. Some had not even become distorted by the melting yet. So he immediately took pictures of the best prints he could find. The prints had been discovered at the 19,000 foot level. They were just a little over 12 inches long and wider than a man's boot. Shipton noted that there were three small toes and one great toe, although there is the impression of a fifth pinky toe that's just visible in the shots. Yeah. Now a copy of this image will be added to our Facebook group and into our show notes so that you can see it. But anyone who has any familiarity any familiarity with the Yeti has probably seen a photograph or a drawing of this footprint at some point. Oh, absolutely. But that is what Shipton saw and that has kind of helped the image of the abominable snowman grow. After he took a picture, the rest of the team caught up to the men before they explored the trail any farther. The entire party followed the trail for about a mile and saw a place where the unknown creature had jumped across the crevice. The prints on either side clearly showed where the creature had dug in its toes on the landing. However, the group had to get back to the official business they were there for, and therefore the mysterious trail was left behind. Oh, come on, guys! News about this expedition and the strange footprints became public in 1952, both with the publication of Shipton's book about his trip, entitled The Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition of 1951, and an article he wrote specifically about the footprints he photographed. So now the excitement about the Yeti grew even larger and drew more explorers to come to the country. Shipton in his book and later article never specifically stated what he thought might have made the tracks, but he does dispute critics that tried to claim that the prints belonged to a bear or a langur monkey, both were common in the Himalayas. The Natural History Museum in London had trotted out a bear from the Himalayas for a walk on the sand so that they could compare the results of its tracks to the photos. They had to state that it was not a match. As far as a Langor monkey, as Shipton points out, the footprints of the largest of the Langors is no more than 8 inches in length. And at 19,000 feet, there's just no food for these primates to survive on. Langors are plant eaters. Yeah, when I see it, the first thing I would think of is apes. But there's no apes up there either. Well, there's the Langor monkeys, but yeah, they're, yeah, they're no, definitely they're not monkeys. even close. Yes. I mean an ape. Exactly. Like a... Like a, like a yeti. Yeah, like a yeti ape. Now the photograph was printed in newspapers, magazines, and science journals across the globe. The evidence seemed to have convinced the world in the existence of the yeti. Everyone believed. Yeah, because you know, really, when you bring up that little part, who doesn't believe in Bigfoot? Even with the photographic proof, the public demanded more. There had to be some physical way to prove the existence of the Yeti once and for all. A famous oil tycoon and explorer was convinced that he could provide just that proof. Oh, of course. Chapter 5, Tom Slick in the Pangbosh Hand. In 1957, Thomas Slick, a Texas oil man, had arrived in Nepal ready to spare no expense to fund a reconnaissance expedition to hunt for the mythical abominable snowman in Nepal. 
Now Slick was an enthusiast in proving the existence of cryptids. He even traveled the world to look for the Sasquatch, the Loch Ness Monster, and now even the Yeti. His quest failed and he had to return home. But before he could return for another opportunity, he became injured while on a hunting trip. But that didn't stop the millionaire. He commissioned two guides, brothers Peter and Brian Byrne, to continue the search for him. Peter Byrne discovered that the monks of the Pangbosh Monastery in a Nepalese valley claimed to hold a yeti skull top and a hand. On Slick's orders, Byrne managed to obtain a single finger from the hand in exchange of a replacement human finger. Come again? In other words, the monastery would accept donations from Westerners to show off this Yeti scalp and right. the hand, the one we had talked about before. Right. They would do this for a donation, okay. and they would show the explorers, and then the explorers would move on. Byrne pulled a fast one and stole a finger from the Pangbosh hand jerk. and slipped in a replacement human finger. <sighs> That's rude. Burns smuggled the finger and some of the skin from the hand across the Nepalese border and into India. There, he made a rendezvous in Calcutta with American movie star Jimmy Stewart and his wife Gloria. And I mean the Jimmy Stewart that we saw in It's a Wonderful Life and all other movies. This actor is a huge fan of Bigfoot, the Yeti, and other cryptids. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, and he was also a friend to Tom Slick. Okay. So Slick had asked him if he would help him obtain this sample. So. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. So this famous couple agreed to smuggle a finger out of India and onto the United Kingdom for research by Slick's friend and primatologist Osmond Hill of the Zoological Society of London. They did this by hiding the Pangbosh finger within Gloria Stewart's undergarments in her luggage. Nobody going through these drawers. Exactly. Because three days later in London, the hotel's concierge called from the reception to say that there was a British customs officer in the hotel lobby asking to see them. Dun, dun, dun. The couple said yes, and of course, in a few minutes, a young British customs officer appeared at the door of their suite. Gloria's lingerie case was in his hand. And they gave the man a cup of tea, had a pleasant chat, and signed a receipt for the case, <laughs> which Gloria noticed was locked and had not been opened. Uh, why were they, why'd they have it? Well, it had to go, go through customs. Just her lingerie? Well, I guess that was the only box that they checked in. Interesting. Okay. Now, as they out the door, Mrs. Stewart pointed out that the case had never been opened and asked why it was still locked and not examined by customs. Oh, madam, said the young man, certainly not. A British customs official would never open a lady's <laughs> lingerie case. That's right. Regardless, the finger was now in England and was now being studied by a primatologist. Several years later, the publisher of the World Book Encyclopedia commissioned their own expedition in the Himalayans. This was led by the famed Everest co-conqueror Edmund Hillary. So this is an individual who has explored Mount Everest and even climbed to the top. Hillary proposed a hunt to discover if the Yeti was myth or monster, and his expedition set out in the late 1960s. 
and while it failed to find evidence of the Yeti, he methodically debunked the supposed Yeti bones he found in Nepal, including the bones in Pangbosh. Unfortunately, this included a secret human finger crudely wired into place courtesy of Byrne. Well, maybe they examined the wrong part. They only examined the finger. The expedition wrote that Pangbosh Monastery also boasts a Yeti hand which more than one expert examining photographs and a flake of skin have declared it to be human or part human. The hand is skeletal, heavily, and marked squared phalanges are wired together in the palm partly covered with brown leathery skin. <laughs> it is possible that some of the bones are not human, but almost certainly the best part of the hand is. It is a large but slender human hand, a woman's perhaps, but most possibly a young llama's. Hmm. Wow. So that's interesting. These examiners were unaware of Burns' swapping of some of the bones. They were indeed looking at replacement human bones and not the original Yeti hand. Hmm. So it's no doubt that they diagnosed that the bones were human. Absolutely. Because they weren't looking at the original Yeti hand. Meanwhile, back in London, skin taken by Byrne didn't prove definitive, and the testing of the skin decades later by a U.S. television show, Unexplained Mystery, also found no clear answer as to what the skin's origin. This means there have been theories that the confusion of the testing results might be that the source of the hand belonged to a Neanderthal man, making the Yeti a descendant of the extinct Neanderthals. Well, uh, I would think that anyway. Actually, well, the hand at the monastery did vanish in 1991 after what? the story of the Yeti relic aired. The stolen bone disappeared until resurfacing in the collection of the Hunterian Museum of the Royal College of Surgeons, which notes it was obtained in 1976. So the original Yeti oh, hand disappeared. So the monks did something with the hand. They beat a bunny. Well, or they hid it away. And the finger was lost until it was found in this uh, museum in 1976. As for the Yeti scalp, the Edmund Hillary expedition that examined the hand was permitted to take the scalp relic with them to have it tested, but only if one of the elders went with it. The monastery was doing this in order to raise money to build schools in Nepal. Examinations of the scalp occurred in three different cities. Chicago, London, and Paris all reported that the relic was made from the hide of a Himalayan serow, which is a goat antelope. <laughs> it is possible that the monks had slipped in a fake in order to prevent the real relic from leaving the temple, but still getting paid for it. Ah, that seems a little not very religious of a monk. I'm going to call BS on that. And so you're going to say that the scalp is actually hair from a goat? No, I don't know about that part, but I don't think a monk would do that. Okay. I don't think a monk would knowingly trade it out just to get money. We'll say that. If it is traded out, okay, whatever, but I don't think it was done in a malicious way. I don't think it was done maliciously either. It was no. to protect, the, protect it so it doesn't get lost or stolen and they would still get paid. Yeah. We never will know. Yeah. That's the, the thing. I mean, I'm not religious, but they're monks, man. That's a pretty high standard. <laughs> That's different than religion. That is 
committed to a religion. Yeah, that's like life. Well, with the Hillary expedition declaring that both the holy relics were fakes, the draw of Yeti hunters to Nepal diminished. The public was no longer fascinated with a creature that they could no longer believe in. Wow, rude. However, one Christmas television special would catch their attention once again. And it would change the face, or at least the color, of the Yeti. What? What? What color was the Yeti? Chapter 6, Rudolph's Yeti. He hasn't always been white? My whole life's been a lie. Okay, let's continue. Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, was first televised in 1964 and introduced several new characters to the story. Among them was Bumble, a shaggy, white, abominable snowman who starts out the show hating everything about Christmas. By the end, however, he is reformed and a critical member of the holiday team. One of the most important reasons for bringing this character up is that all of the Sherpa and expedition versions of the Yeti are creatures with shaggy brown or red-brown coats. Like Bigfoot. Exactly. I never mentioned earlier what the descriptions of the creature were. No. You assumed that he was white because that is what we, since Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, we have all been trained ourselves to thinking the Yeti is white. Whereas in the Himalayans, he is brown with a red-brown coat. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was the first time that the creature had ever been portrayed with white hair. The new image portrayed of the Yeti took off and the popularity of the white-haired snowman has been the media constant ever since. Um, My whole life. Well, let me me put some more truth down to you. Great. I have a bumble theory. Uh Oh. Okay. Now, the Bumble starts out described as being mean, being nasty, and hating everything about Christmas. Why? Perhaps in a land of candy cane forests, Christmas cookies and candy, he ate so much that he developed cavities and a toothache, or even more than one toothache. This would explain why the Bumble didn't immediately eat Rudolph's family after capturing them. Clarice even comments, why doesn't he just get it over with? The reason was probably because his mouth hurt and he was hangry because he just couldn't eat anything. It was Kirby, the misfit dental elf, who removed not only the bad teeth, but all of them, which probably is a case of malpractice, but we'll let that go for the time being. This changes the Bumble's entire attitude. With his mouth pain gone, the Yeti ends the story helping the elves. And that's why I think the Yeti was the way he was during Rudolph Nose Reindeer. Okay. Which brings us back to the Yeti and the monk and the splinter in his foot. And that's kind of a replay of that legend. Now, the media since this Christmas special has represented the Yeti in similar fashions as a friendly snow beast and has renewed his popularity as a mythical creature. So, I've got how many Yetis in there? How many bumbles do I have in the living room? I know. He's a decoration. At least three. He's a Christmas standard now. (laughs) So I've basically told you all the different stories of how we know the Yeti or the Abominable Snowman. Okay. So now let's go ahead and talk about some of the theories. Of course, we're going to have the misidentifications. Yeah. Because the Yeti is supposed to be a brown shaggy creature that stands on two legs, obviously there's going to be the bear theory. 
The Himalayans do have a large brown bear that could be mistaken for the Yeti. In fact, that is the most common explanation of it. With the hair samples, bone samples, even teeth have been found that have been claimed to belonging to the Yeti. Of all these samples, the DNA has always come back as a Himalayan bear. <laughs> However, this has had a positive effect because they have now discovered that the Himalayan bear of, the, of Mount Everest is genetically different from brown bears anywhere else. So somewhere on its line of evolution, the Nepalese brown bear has branched off from all other brown bears. Do they look like a bear? They do look like a bear, oh. but uh, don't, they do not look like a Yeti. <laughs> Interesting. So you do have the bear theory that, yeah, just like all Sasquatches are brown bears, all Yetis are also brown bears. This is one theory. Hmm. You also have the hoax theory. Yeah. Well, you got to remember that the original enthusiasm for the abominable snowman was created by sensationalism journalism. Right. I mean, they even mistranslated the name into Abominable just right. to sell newspapers. That's a hoax. Right. In regards to the Shipton print, that footprint that was published in all those newspapers and articles and stuff, it was reported in a later interview by a colleague that it would not be out of character for the prankster Shipton to fake a footprint in order to stir up the public. But not proof that he did. Not proof. Okay. This is just claimed by a colleague that he is, he is possible that he could have faked it. Mm -hmm. Then you have to take into account Hillary's expedition and their testing of the monastery relics. You know, they tested the bones of the hand and found that they were humans. Oh, yeah. Them. And they tested the scalp of the Yeti and found that it belonged to a Ciro, which is a goat. That part I don't get. Well, all of these lend support right. to believing that the Yeti has always been a fake. Then you also have to take into account that Tibet makes a lot of money off of tourism because of stories of the Yeti. In fact, at its highest point of tourism, the government offered Yeti hunting licenses. Really? Yes. So as Westerners could come to Nepal and get a hunting license to shoot a Yeti. If you take out the bear theory and you take out the host theory, that means that the Yeti is an actual creature and does exist. Right. So what is he? First off, there is the Neanderthal theory. This is the one I'm closest with. And a lot of people are as well, because you do have the Pengbosh hand, and it was human-like DNA, but it wasn't exactly human. That would fall into the realms of being a Neanderthal. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that the Neanderthals were, were still roaming around, and someone could have found a preserved one out in the snow. Okay, so think of like you're watching National Geographic or okay, this is years ago because I haven't seen anything like this now and they're like deep in the jungles and there's these tribes that don't know any humans and they have their own life, their own beliefs, their own world right there. They don't match too much of someone on the street so you're you're so, theorizing that it's a lost tribe of it could be mm. a, yeah they could still be that far back neanderthal like huh? i uh, mean scientists have found that neanderthals likely disappeared from europe roughly 40 to 44,000 years ago and even though that may seem like a long time ago there are species of animals that have existed and still exist for over 450 million years ago such as sharks 
and you have the coelacanth, which is a fish to have thought to have gone extinct 65 million years ago until it was discovered to still exist and swim in the waters off of South Africa. So it isn't too unrealistic to think that Neanderthals, who supposedly went extinct only 40,000 years ago, might still be around and, like you said, be a lost tribe they in the mountains of Mount Everest. So deep up in there. Another theory is, is that it's an unidentified species. The world has so many different versions of the Bigfoot, of the Sasquatch, the Yowie, the, you know, the Skunk Ape. Pretty much every continent has their own large hairy hominid. So that does support that if, the, if everyone proves that the Sasquatch exists, then there's proof that the Yeti is an unidentified species as well. Right. Its own creature, all unique to itself. Now, popular culture. Definitely during this time of the year, as you mentioned, the Yeti is everywhere. Right. Especially at Christmas time. Popular culture finds the Yeti in children's stories, such as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Monsters Incorporated has a Yeti at the end. Smallfoot is about a Yeti uh, discovering a person. The movie Abominable is about a girl who finds a Yeti and they become friends. Even Walt Disney's World Expedition Everest ride at Animal Kingdom. Disney's Animal Kingdom has a ride called Expedition Everest, Mm -hmm. which is based off of Mount Everest and being attacked by the Yeti. Love it. One of my biggest complaints has had always been that as you're going down the last hill, the Yeti is standing above you trying to grab you. Mm-hmm. This Yeti is what? Brown. And shaggy. I didn't realize that. And I used to always complain that he should have been white. Wow. Guess what? Disney was doing it realistic. That's crazy. Exactly. So now I owe Disney World an apology. For being mad because the abominable wow. snowman in the Expedition Everest ride isn't white, but actually is supposed to be that brown shaggy coat. Awesome. <laughs> but all the toys they have of him is white. All the pictures they have of him is white. Yeah. But because the... commercially, that's what yeah. everyone buys is the white abominable snowman. Well, look at your car. What's your car's name? My car's name is the Yeti. I even what have color a logo. Is your car? I even have a logo of the Yeti, and my car is white. See. I, that's why I said I wow. learned a lot in preparing for this that's episode. That's crazy. So, in popular culture, the Yeti is a child's friend in so many ways. For the adults, especially adults who like the horror movies, there are many creature mm. features that uh, are about the Yeti. Right. Such as Yeti in 2008, which was a TV movie. Then there was Snow Creature in 1954. Jeez. Back when they were, this is back when they were having Frankenstein and Dracula yeah. and all those movies. Snow Creature was another one that it, it just didn't quite, you know, make it as big as the other ones, but right. he was there too. Huh. I mean, this was about an American botanical expedition into the Himalayas, stumbling across a Yeti den. They capture one and transport it back to Los Angeles, where it escapes while custom officials are debating whether it's an animal or a human. Interesting. Kind of reminds me of the story of the creature from the Black Lagoon, the third one. The snow creature could have been another one of the universal monsters, the legends. And then in 1977, there's the movie Snow Beast. A Colorado ski resort is besieged by a subhuman beast that commits brutal murders on the slopes. (laughs) So there's a lot of horror movies out there as well that contain the Yeti, the aggressive version. That's awesome. Okay. 
So I know there was a lot of there's a lot of legends and history and theories about the Yetis. What I want to know now is what are some of your final opinions? Well, it still stays the same. I mean, I'm all for there being a Yeti out there, just like I'm all for um, Bigfoot and Skunk Ape and all that fun stuff. I mean, they're out there. I think they are. Well, you're not going to look for a white one, though. I'm kind of sad about that. Well, being sure to ski down the snowy slopes, I suppose this is a good time to make our way back out of the mist and bring this episode to a close. Special thanks to David Facilian and Facilian Studios for our introduction music. For those who want to learn more about the Yeti, be sure to check out Tom Slick and the Search for the Yeti by Lauren Coleman, which is all about, oh. yeah, this is, it, it's really good information that he uncovered about so Tom Lauren Slick's. So Lauren Coleman even has Yeti stuff? He has everything, to be honest. Damn, he's awesome. And then there's also the Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition, which is a article, uh, journal, travel journal, written by Eric Shipton in 1951 that goes over his entire expedition on the Everest to That's include awesome. the tracks about the Yeti. So do you think, I don't know how many of you, our listeners, have ever been to Disney and have, and have been on the Everest ride, but the queue when you're going to, on point of entering until you get to the ride there's all sorts of artifacts and this you know such i wonder if we were to go and look i wonder if any of these names would be in there that would be a good trivia thing for i us think to we do need to go there. see yeah i think you and i need to make a trip just for the yeah. ride just to see if just to see if shipped in hillary or yeah. howard berry any yeah. of their names are tied in disney's pretty good at the easter eggs so oh, i bet yeah. those easter eggs are there i'm really curious now but if any of our listeners have already seen that, yeah, let us know. That yeah, would be definitely. great to, to find out. And if we cool. do find them, we'll take pictures and put them on the website. Absolutely. Right. Speaking of social media, we would like to ask you to please leave us a review on the podcast provider you are listening to this podcast on. It helps promote our show. And as the rate we're growing, you guys are doing fantastic. So keep up the good work. We are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about the encounters with creatures such as the Yeti of your own. You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram and Twitter, plus we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com. For any of you who would like to share your stories, we love hearing about your own personal experiences. We hope you enjoyed our stories about the Yeti, and we'll come again for another episode. Please spread the word to your friends who would enjoy listening to our tales about cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. Until then, we want to wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. See you next week.